0: Hello, 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 and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Podcast. So today is a super, super important episode, and it was something that I haven't had on before and hasn't been discussed before, and it's one of those conversations that definitely needs to be had. So I think the episode today with Dr. Tommy Wood is one of those that I think every single one of us knows, someone who has struggled with dementia or Alzheimer's, and I wanted to make sure that this topic was covered. But before I go into today's episode, there's a massive announcement coming on the 13th of the month, or 13th of March, 2023. And it's something that I've been working on with my clients to develop for you. And it's an improvement and a change on the current group coaching program that I offer, which is the Female Fatalist Program. I've decided to revamp it. I've decided to lengthen it. I've to decided to reduce the price of it. So, the biggest thing that I would say is this is something that has been created by clients for clients that are looking to improve their relationship with food, get the, the the lasting results they're looking for, and also for this to be the last program that someone ever does because that's how confident I am. If someone implements what's the changes and the tweaks that we might, that the minor tweaks that we can make, this will be the last thing, and it's also to make it more affordable for people because we know that there's. A financial crisis going on at the minute, but we also want to make sure that people are still looking after their health and have a lower priced item that they can still do that. So keep an eye out for the thirteenth of March when everything, all the details, will be provided. But I'm super, super excited because it's unique. I haven't seen anything else that's been created by clients. Everything else has been created by robots or PTs and all that kind of stuff. This has been actually been created by clients. But today's episode with Dr. Tommy Wood is one of those that kind of hit home because I was kind of, I've known a few people with it and some of the stats are quite scary that it's particularly in the UK, one in 14 people over 65 would develop dementia and it's, the figure is rising to one in six once we're over 80 and it's one of those diseases that many people fear the most uh, along with cancer and other, thing, other things and other things. It's important that when we have this discussion, that the information has been provided in a manner that you can understand because there's so many clinical papers, so many different things. But Dr. Tommy Wood is an assistant professor of pediatrics and neuroscience at the University of Washington in the US. He also holds a degree in biochemistry from Cambridge, a medical degree from Oxford, and achieved his PhD in physiology and neuroscience in Oslo, and has published papers and lectured across the globe. It's fair to say that when it comes to brain health, he, he generally knows his stuff. So some of the things that we kind of talk about are nutrition and exercise around it. We talk about, there's one of the things about kind of like having a football, does that impact on it? We also talk about the impact of the menopause on brain health, are women more susceptible to it around dementia and Alzheimer's, the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia. We talk about it, the importance of training your brain, the important surprising value of actual video games the importance of social connection and it's a hugely hugely important episode so i really do hope you enjoy the episode with dr tommy wood tommy how are we sir
1: uh very good uh very nice to be here with you thanks so much for having me on
0: thank you so much for coming on because i know i heard you on dr Chatterjee's podcast and i was kind of like this is a topic that I haven't had discussed in depth and probably mm-hmm. enough and i think it's i think we know some i think everyone know, knows someone that suffered from alzheimer's or dementia or something yeah. So, it, it's a massive, massive thing. But before we go into that, can you tell us who Tommy is and what Tommy does?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. What do, what do I do? That's, that's a, a complicated question to answer. Uh, basically, I am, I'm a neuroscientist. I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics and neuroscience at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, but I, I grew up and did most of my training as a medical doctor in the UK. And then I did a PhD in, in Norway before moving to the U S. Um, and I kind of have two broad streams of my work. One is as a, a basic scientist in the lab, trying to treat uh, brain injuries of different kinds. Um, and the other is as a performance coach, I've sort of along the line worked with various athletes. Uh, so I work with formula one drivers primarily now, but I've worked with professional athletes in a whole different range of sports. Um, you know, around things like nutrition and, and sleep and supplements and blood work and stuff like that. Um, and I try and draw those strands together by thinking about what can we do to maximize our health and performance across the entire lifespan. So I focus right at the beginning of life, uh, newborn babies with brain injury, I look at traumatic brain injury uh, in athletes and the military throughout life. And then I look at uh, cognitive decline and dementia late in life and how can we sort of keep the brain functioning and as healthy as possible across that entire span because of course what happens early affects what happens late uh, all those things interact uh, but also all the things that we can do to intervene are beneficial at all those stages as well so it kind of ties together quite nicely i think
0: And i can see the formula one i can see the ferrari hat behind you so i get
1: in trouble when i have non-ferrari drivers on call so i need to like
0: <laughs> I, add okay, other teams. Yeah, yeah. I
1: need to add other teams. Or i
0: have them yeah. all up there so you're kind of like your new Yeah, exactly. I,
1: I am impartial, I promise. I just <laughs> happen to have one up there.
0: Yeah. Um because I know like like the the topics of kind of like particularly if you're talking about sport and stuff, the likes of concussions and kind of like if you look at say uh jack charlton and bobby charlton and dennis mm-hmm. law and those kind of people like those that kind of air vintage are kind of like they have that there's a link with dementia and alzheimer's and stuff like that as well so it's, it's definitely prevalent but one of the big things that we kind of need to talk about is there's so much information out there to help our brain health mm-hmm. and there's so much misinformation mm-hmm. to help our brain health yeah it's normally somewhere in the middle well, how can we improve our brain health? Is the big, very broad question. <laughs>
1: um, it, it's a great question, and I think it may maybe helps to frame how you think about brain health. Like, what is brain health? And and uh, myself and a good colleague of mine, he's a neurologist. Uh, we we started a, a podcast called Better Brain Fitness. It's like a question and answer, so people can submit questions and and we answer them. And we'll answer one question in each episode. And somebody asked, what is brain health? And you kind of think, oh, yeah, we talk about brain health all the time, but what does that actually mean? Um, and to me, it essentially means that two main things. One is that your brain is able to support you in doing all the things that you want to be able to do. And that's different from person to person, right? So what I want my brain to do is different from what you want your brain to do in terms of you know your pursuits and w- whatever it is you're reading or in- interacting with other people you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think a critical important, critically important part of brain health is to have additional capacity above what you do every day, right? It's the same with our muscles and our strength. You, you have your daily activities, going up and down stairs, getting in and out of chairs, things like that. But in order to protect you and keep you safe, you need to be able to do more if you have to, right? Sprint for a bus or catch yourself. If you stumble and fall, these are the things that sort of keep us alive, essentially. And that's additional capacity above what you need to be able to do just your daily activities. I think the brain is the same. So having some, you know, extra headroom, I think is really important. And the way that we do that is by training our brains by challenging them with new skills and social interaction and learning languages and things like that. So things that we can do to support our brain health. I kind of think of it in three buckets. One is like supply, getting stuff to the brain that the brain needs. And that's like oxygen, glucose, right? So having a having good blood vessels that work well. So things around cardiovascular health, very important. Then also the nutrients that the brain needs, um, lots of B vitamins, uh, maybe some omega-3 fatty acids, things that you get like in, in fish, right? That's, that's important and being able to get into the brain is important um then i think we need to stimulate the brain i kind of already said that and we could we could talk about that more uh challenge your brain to to do new things just like if you want to get stronger or fitter you have to challenge your body the brain is the same um and then we need to Provide some opportunity to rest and recover. Most athletes will tell you you don't get stronger in the gym; you get stronger when you're recovering and sleeping afterwards. Again, the brain is, seems to be exactly the same. And you know, while you're trying to recover, you maybe want to avoid some of the things that that prevent that from happening. So we could think about chronic stress. We could think about um, you know uh, toxic exposures, for want of a better word. Um, air pollution is closely linked to cognitive decline, as is smoking. Um, excessive alcohol intake, those kinds of things that maybe prevent the brain from uh, reaching the heights of its possible performance. So from person to person, uh, different buckets are uh, are more or less important. uh, But those are kind of how I group them together and think about, you know, how can I help an individual or people more broadly improve the health of their brains.
0: When you talk about challenging the brain, what do you mean? Because I know, like I know, a ninety-three or ninety-four-year-old man to teach himself German every day, and he's sharp as a tack. Like I don't—I'm not saying the two are linked, but what I'm saying
1: is—I would—I would guess that they are.
0: Oh, he like—he's a former barrister, so he's sharp as yeah. a tack. But then he teaches himself German every single day, and like literally nothing gets past him.
1: Yeah. So, so that's that's exactly it, uh, essentially. Um, and again, I I often draw ties to. Physical health, because I think it's easier for people to understand that. Um, And so if, like I said, you want to get fitter, stronger, you have to challenge yourself in the gym, go for a run, whatever. And if we think about how our brains function and when our brains function their best, it's when we're continuously challenging and stimulating them. So concrete examples, uh, I like to think about babies as they develop and toddlers. Right. They're continuously learning language, social skills, motor skills, like right. learning how to coordinate your body in 3D space is incredibly difficult. It's like a huge challenge for the brain. And then you do that and then you sleep for a long period of time. And you know, you get better over time. And there's this continuous process of trying and failing and slowly getting better. Uh, and we do this throughout most of the childhood. And then in our teenage years, we're maybe doing this at school. Like, your job is to learn stuff, right, as as a kid, essentially. And your peak brain performance, your your sort of peak cognitive performance, depending on how how you measure it, is probably in your late teens, early 20s. And that's because throughout the entire time, all you've had to do is learn skills. It would be that, you know, musical instruments, languages – Um, physical skills, cognitive skills, playing sports. And then after that, you get a job and you do the same thing again and again and again every day. And then it's no longer a challenge to do those things. Like learning how to drive is challenging initially. And then it just becomes something you do every day. You don't even think about it. And you can kind of track this pattern of average brain performance in the general population that as we do less and less learning of new skills and trying out of new things, our brain performance declines. And I believe that they're directly related. So it's not that you just like get into your 20s. And then there's this unstoppable decline of your brain that you can't do anything about. It's probably at least partly initiated by the fact that you stop using your brain and challenging your brain in the same way. So, you know, continuously learning new skills, languages are perfect people who are bilingual, are protected against cognitive decline. Um, People who play musical instruments uh, are protected against cognitive decline. There's a, a really cool study where they looked at musicians. And they did this thing called brain age, which is you put you do an MRI scan of a brain. And then you ask a machine learning algorithm, how old does this brain look like not knowing anything else? Like how old does this brain look? And What they found was that compared to non-musicians, musicians musicians had younger looking brains relative to how old they actually were in years. And the effect was bigger in amateur musicians compared to professional musicians. And the theory from, from the authors of this study was that it's harder as an amateur musician, right? If you're a professional, it's kind of, it's what, it's what you do. It's your day job. It's what you're good at. But if you're an amateur, you're continuously trying, continuously failing. It's more of a challenge. And as a result, you have a, a younger looking brain. So we can kind of think about all these different skills that we could learn. Uh, anything that has a social component, right, is how it seems to benefit multiple uh, areas. Um, and it could be movement, right? You could uh, uh, yoga, something with a coordination uh, component. Uh, they've done studies where they compare like dancing to circuit training or um, badminton to cycling. Those uh, those uh, sports or uh, physical activities that have this coordination component are more of a challenge for the for the brain, and you can actually see greater benefits, even though how difficult they are physically is is relatively similar.
0: How I think really interesting about the musicians thing. Um, it's really interesting, and in relation to the power of sleep, mm-hmm. and I think. I think my clients will be bored of me, me talking about sleep, but I'm going to talk about it again anyway. Um, <laughs> how much of an impact does sleep have on brain health, or am, am I overplaying it?
1: No, I, I don't. Well, so it's possible that you're overplaying it, depending on how you play. But I'm not saying it's like <laughs> you're going to
0: die. I'm not. I'm not going that far. I'm. I'm just saying it may not be helpful, conducive to your brain. Yeah. Health
1: and 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 that's that's absolutely true i think in the last sort of 10 and 10 to 15 years sleep has become like a, a sexy topic like you could talk about <laughs> it i mean, remember right uh a while ago would be like you know sleep when you're dead whatever yeah and the, hustle, the hustle thing. yeah yeah exactly and not not appreciating that the less you sleep the more likely you are to be dead so it's going to happen sooner um so if, if you think about there, there are both short-term and long-term uh, benefits of of sleep. Um, if you're acutely sleep deprived, right, you have one or two nights of really bad sleep, the next day, um, you can see decreases in executive function, like your ability to, to perform complex tasks and make complex decisions. But also you, you get decreases in empathy, like you're less able to understand and um, sort of uh, empathize interact with with others in a meaningful way. And that can then affect jobs and you know um family relationships right so even just short-term sleep's important but i will say that uh kind of to your point we've some some small section of society has gotten so hyper-focused on sleep that we've gone the other way right you get so stressed about not sleeping that that stress in itself negatively affects you the next day and there are some very nice studies on that there's a one of my favorite researchers is a psychologist called Ellen Langer who's at Harvard and she does all these studies where she like manipulates time and sees how people react. And in one of in one of the studies that her group did they took people and they put them in a lab and had them sleep but they manipulated the the, the time on the clock. So they had people sleep 5 hours or 8 hours and then they crossed them over. So some of the people thought they slept eight hours when they slept five. And some people thought they slept five when they slept eight. And if you slept for five hours but you thought you slept for eight, you were fine. Oh wow. But if you slept for eight hours but thought you slept for five, you had worse cognitive performance the next day. So there are absolutely benefits of of sleep. But if we become hyper focused on it there is are there some negative potential effects. So getting stressed about your sleep is kind of counter, you know, counterintuitive, it's it's self defeating. Um, so there's a there's a balance to be found. Um, but, you know, looking at across all the data, you know, meta analyses, individual studies, it seems like if you're worried about dementia, specifically, regularly sleeping less than six hours seems to be where the risk really increases. Um, and that's probably a, a lower number than you're expecting me to say. Right. You Five, probably seven thought... to
0: nine is kind of number, the one that they kind of say to kind of aim for somewhere around that yeah number.
1: yeah so if you're sleeping more than six close to seven you you're, you're probably uh, you're probably fine and i think some of the discrepancy is is also to do with how much you know like individual sleep needs you know people say you have to sleep seven to eight hours but you have people who do great on six and people who do yeah. great on nine and so it <clears throat> if you feel good the next day and you're not sleepy you know, recovered you're able to do all the things you want to do even if it's seven hours of sleep you know great you don't need to sleep eight hours like nobody should tell you that so as long as you feel good probably sleeping more than six hours um you know uh i reckon you're you're, you're in the sweet spot for most things
0: awesome you mentioned uh dementia mm-hmm. so the big thing that we need to figure out is what is the difference between alzheimer's and dementia Uh, Because and the signs of both, because I think a lot of people can do a lot of people get confused by them. Uh,
1: Yeah, so so dementia is actually a a, a kind of a a coverall term for several neurodegenerative disorders. And dementia is is just a clinical diagnosis, which is basically a chronic um, loss of a large range of cognitive functions to a certain severity. Okay. And you can there's a for for some types of dementia, particularly late onset Alzheimer's disease, or or sporadic Alzheimer's disease, there's a period of decline uh, in between uh, that you can also diagnose called mild cognitive impairment, which is kind of, you know, you're sort of on the way, but not quite at full dementia yet. Um, But there are other types of dementia, some some of which, you know, we don't know what causes them. Some of which are, are associated with other neurodegenerative conditions, but probably the one that people are most focused on is Alzheimer's dementia, because that's the commonest one, and that's you know the one that you you see on the TV when you know people can't remember anything and they have to be in um, you know special care, and that's the one that right now we think about. A million people in the UK have, and it's going to be two million in a couple of decades time. And in the US, they say it's going to bankrupt the healthcare system, um, both because of the demands of, you know, the individual patient, but, but, you know, on top of that, you have carers and families and the huge stress and burden on them. So, you know, it's it's serious business. Uh, Dementia is the commonest cause of death in the UK. Now it's overtaken heart, heart disease and and cancer. Um, So with Alzheimer's dementia, particularly um, about 95 to 99% is this late onset, uh, Alzheimer's disease, there is a small subset that is purely genetic. um, And it's, that's, that's something that we sort of put on a put aside, it it happens in younger individuals, it's more um, homogeneous, like it's, it's less variable, you know, when it starts, you have this very sort of well described decline. um, And it's, it's, you know, it's due to a single genetic mutation. Um, Whereas the majority of cases, they're much more variable from person to person. Um, There's a a nice quote that says, once you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, uh, because they're so different from from individual to individual, probably because risk factors are different genetic backgrounds, different environments, different, and all those, all those things come into play. So that's kind of When we think about Alzheimer's disease, it's this one, it's the commonest, but one type of dementia. And that's the one that I think most people uh, are most focused on.
0: And like, what are some of the kind of the signs that you could see that if you're kind of looking out for in a loved one, like, I'm not sure how you can look out for yourself if it's on that decline anyway, I hope it makes sense. But yeah, what are some of the signs to watch out for?
1: So. It, it kind of depends. Um, most people... So if we if we talk about that trajectory where you have supposedly normal function, then you have mild cognitive impairment, then you have dementia. Most people, if you actually ask them honestly and they honestly thought about it, there's this period of sub- subjective cognitive impairment that happens first, which means that only you really know about it. Okay. And then... Um, And that's important because each individual has a different baseline and has different skills and different requirements from their brain, right? Um, And the problem with standardized tests is it assumes everybody's the same, but some people who are good at at one thing, right, they might have a lot of function to lose before it gets picked up on a test, right? Um, And that's one of the downsides of standardized tests is nobody no two people are the same, uh, but they kind of have to treat them the same before things get picked up. So there's this period of subjective cognitive decline, which could be, you know, decades could, you know, where, where you just think I'm not sharp as I used to be. I'm not remembering things, um, uh, as, as well as I used to, um, you know, sometimes you, you can feel that your personality is changing slightly. You're, um, get angry more easily or things like, you know, it, it's, it's going to be different from individual to individual. But if you really thought about it, you might notice it. Of course, some of that is normal. Um, in, in a way that we can we can talk about later. Um, there's very good reasons why you might forget where you put your keys that aren't related to dementia. Um, and, and we can we can come to that. But so there's this subjective period that you could ask people about. Um, and I think if they really thought about it, they'd they'd uh, they'd say, "Oh yeah, I, I've noticed that." Um, equally, there's um, what was I going to say? Oh, no, I can't remember. Uh
0: oh. If you want to talk about the keys, the the, the, the keys thing that you're going to talk yeah,
1: about. Yeah, yeah, okay. We we can talk about we can talk about that. Um, we can talk about that first. Um, so. Uh, this uh, colleague of mine, who I mentioned, we started this podcast together. Um, he's laid out some, and he so he's a neurologist. He works with with individuals like this uh, every day, and he's laid out some nice points um, to me about you know why we might think about our memory differently as as we get older. So so two two main things that I think are important. One is that the brain is um, wired for novelty right you're trying to notice and internalize things that are new because they may be potentially important over a lifetime of trying to remember where your keys are this becomes less and less interesting to your brain it's like I've seen that okay. don't need to worry about it right it's not novel anymore so that's not something I need to I need to you know, put into short-term memory because like I do this every day so that's that's kind of the difference between knowledge and wisdom your brain is becoming wise it's like is it you know is it really important that i have to remember where the keys are relative to you know the whole you know everything that i have to remember probably not so this is your brain kind of filtering things out being like that's probably not as important as other things i might need to remember then the other part of it is as you have more things to remember as you have a lifetime of experiences it takes a little longer to retrieve those experiences right you have a bigger bigger hard drive more things so i imagine if i if i'm going through my, my the folders on my computer to find the file that i want i've got m- many more subfolders now than i did 10 years ago right so and that's just perfectly normal retrieval is slower because there's more information to sift through and that's not necessarily a bad thing so one of the things that i think we could do is acknowledge that as we gain more, you know, experience and more knowledge, the way that we use our brains necessarily changes. And that's not like necessarily signs of decline. This is just how your your brain functions as things accumulate over time. So that was that was the point that I wanted to make. Um, And I think we all too often, you know, ascribe these things to I'm getting older my brain's getting worse, nothing I can do about it. You know, when it, in in fact, it's just uh, a change in in how your brain might have to access all the information that does have access to. Um, okay. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, um, is there a kind of one gender over the other that's more predispositioned to Alzheimer's and dementia? Or is yes. it even, I know which one it is. Uh, yeah.
1: So about about two-thirds of Alzheimer's cases are women um, and one of the rapid periods of increased risk is around menopause. So um, health and hormonal status around the menopausal transition seems to be uh, really critical uh, in women in particular. So um, there's that's 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 one part of it is probably that that change in hormonal status. Um, another part of it may be, that men are more likely to die of something else, but that's that. That was sort of uh, a theory, you know, five or ten longer years ago. But now it's thought to be more around sort of the the differences in in biology and how the hormones support the health of the brain. Like estrogen is uh, is a trophic factor; it supports um, brain health and the growth of neurons and connections in the brain. And obviously, uh, menopause is there's, there's a rapid loss of that. Um, so it's, it's, probably related to some of those hormonal factors.
0: And what can be done to, cause a lot of them like, I predominantly work with females, uh, and those who have had menstrual cycles and have menstrual cycles, um, is there anything that can be done to kind of navigate that, uh, Yeah, with, either through HRT, lifestyle, nutrition, whatever.
1: Uh, yes, all, all of the above. I think the, the lifestyle and environmental factors are the same regardless um of the individual so all of those things still come into play but then um sort of well designed probably started uh, earlier on um during the during during menopause uh, hormonal replacement therapy um maybe bioidentical hormonal replacement therapy um is is better of course um with uh, uh, an endocrinologist or a, gynecologist who knows what they're doing um i think that that can definitely help
0: awesome and is there kind of like an average age of when it kind of kind of sets in for someone or is it kind of like is a very
1: wide but what for for dementia or alzheimer's disease uh both yeah it's it's kind of for this you know the the commonest late onset it's probably risk really starts to increase 60s but then it, it increases with each with each year, uh, essentially.
0: Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, one of the things that they've kind of said in the... Kind of, I'm not sure if it's just in the media or through the research. I i can't really remember when I was doing the research on the questions. was saying that kind of like referring to late-onset al- late Alzheimer's as kind of type 3 diabetes mm-hmm. and due to its link to insulin resistance. Can you explain, is it actually the case? And then also explain what insulin resistance is because I think people... Well, understand it from one point of view from weight loss point of view but mm. they may not understand it in general
1: so more broadly insulin resistance is any and it can happen in any organ or tissue in the body usually it's a it's a whole body thing um that may start in the fat tissue or the muscle tissue depending on the individual and then it sort of propagates from there but it's basically the cells not listening to a normal signal from insulin which is basically the hormone that decides where energy goes in the body is you know one of the main hormones that does that we often think of it in relation to glucose particularly because of type 1 diabetes where people don't have insulin and they need to take it or otherwise you know sort of catastrophic issues with, with blood sugar and en- energy getting into cells but it actually regulates a whole bunch of other things it regulates muscle tissue regulates fat tissue um, and it just sort of, it's like directing energy around the body, essentially, uh, insulin makes sure that you have enough, but not too much energy circulating in your blood for all your organs to, to function properly. Insulin resistance then says that tissues, um, are, are, can't hear that signal for whatever reason. And it's related to a whole bunch of stuff it can be related to, you see it in chronic inflammation. So people who have autoimmune conditions, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, you can have, you know, significant insulin resistance kind of driven by that inflammation. Um, it can be related to body composition, physical activity, um, a number of things. And one sort of early sign, and it, it gets worse over time, you can, you can see it on a, on a particular type of brain scan, uh, something called a, a PET scan, you can see that glucose isn't being taken up into the brain as it normally would. So, a signal that uh, a tissue is insulin resistant is that it's not taking up uh, as much glucose as it, as it should. And so this may be happening in certain areas of the brain, and particularly the the the, the areas of the brain that are most at risk in Alzheimer's disease. Um, so this is what has led some people to, to call Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes, because the brain looks insulin resistant. At the same time, um, we know that the worse your sort of Overall blood sugar control is the faster your cognitive decline. So we we can measure your fasting blood sugar in the morning, or we can measure something called an HBA one C, which is a which is a measure of your sort of longer term blood sugar control. And the worse that is, um, the faster your your cognitive functions decline on average. So again, there's this tight link between blood sugar regulation and the the health and and function of the brain. I don't think that type three diabetes is necessarily a useful moniker. I understand why people have coined that um, because of this, this signature that you can see on a brain scan. But I also, the way that I think about Alzheimer's disease, there's all these moving parts, you know, those three buckets I talked about earlier, blood sugar control is just one of them. Um, And I think whenever we pigeonhole a disease with like one small part of a bigger picture, we make it much harder. To, to intervene. Um, and this has actually been an issue with Alzheimer's disease in the past, where we focused on this thing called amyloid, which is this accumulation of uh, protein that, that aggregates in cells in the brain, and you can see it in individuals with Alzheimer's disease. But and we, we've created a whole bunch of drugs, spent billions and billions, you know, trying to treat Alzheimer's by targeting amyloid, and it doesn't work. Um, and that's because we became so hyper-focused on amyloid. We didn't look at the bigger picture. And so I think that calling Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes risks doing the same. So blood sugar control is very important. I think for long-term brain health and cognitive function, but it's not the only thing. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole, uh, range of other things that, that are important inputs as well.
0: Okay. Brilliant. Um, I, this is one is I have, I have not sent this question over to you. This is just <laughs> me thinking out loud as it's come to my head uh in relation to say sports because i know like Mm. concussion and the likes of i think it's called concussion by will with will smith in it and likes of sports heading a football and stuff is there a link between kind of alzheimer's dementia and kind of like repetitive impact on the head from like a football or just getting a high like concussions from from rugby and stuff like that those are the two main sports i can think of in my head right now
1: yeah there definitely seems to be um Right now, there's there's still a lot of controversy in this arena where people will say, you know, there's more or less evidence relate, you know, connecting repetitive concussions to, you know, degeneration of the brain. And there's this condition, which was uh, kind of the focus of that, that film and the book yeah. concussion, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is basically uh, linked to individuals who get repeated impacts to their head, or um, can be blast exposure uh, in the military. Even um, we think, you know, repetitive. You know, if you're uh, if you're firing mortars, or if you're firing a sniper rifle, right? These are small explosions happening next to your head continuously. It it looks like this is then linked to faster cognitive decline. It may be slightly different from Frank Alzheimer's disease, but they certainly seem to be linked to some type of dementia. And you can see, you know, that they've done large case studies. And, and this is this is the problem with proving that this is the case. And, and that this is where the, the controversy comes from, is people will say, well, you can never prove that this is true, because you can't randomize somebody to be punched in the face several times across a lifetime and, and, and look at the effect. So I think one is like, um, you know sort of the authorities are, are are trying to to figure out who's liable for this stuff but i would say yes i, str- I strongly believe that repetitive impacts um or exposures uh, to the brain like that mm. lead to long-term um you know brain degeneration and dementia um and some of which may end up being uh, diagnosed as alzheimer's disease but it may also be slightly different depending on which areas of the brain get affected
0: so I'm gonna tell my football manager I'm not heading the ball anymore. Is what I <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do. I'm gonna train him tonight and say I'm not heading the ball anymore as a defender. I don't know how that's gonna go down. Nah, unfortunately,
1: that's kind of part of your job, isn't
0: it? Yeah, unfortunately, you stick your head in where you don't want it to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially, know, especially
1: if you want to be a good defender.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not. I have nothing to uh, to ha- ha- to kind of cushion the blow either. 'Cause I know in Scotland, is it Scotland? I think it is Scotland, they have the footballers, they're not allowed to do heading practice during the week or something. There's one of the countries in Britain, I think. Um, I think they've kind of like, they have kind of maybe banned the heading side of things, or else it's in kids, I cannot remember. In,
1: in the in the US they've made it. So I think kids under twelve can't head the ball when they play soccer, as they call it. Soccer
0: under twelve. Why why did they cap it at twelve?
1: I don't know. They, somebody has to make a cutoff and that's what they decided i have a, there's no strong evidence that it's going to be i mean it's important at all times yeah but, i mean as you get i mean one thing is there's some evidence to suggest that your risk of concussion or brain injury is related to the strength of your neck and so obviously as you get older you get stronger so some of the risk will will decrease but it certainly won't disappear completely
0: so the next gener- generation of U.S. soccer players are going to be ducking for headers from <laughs> <laughs> So Geoff Jeff Peter Krejci at a retirement. Um, it, one of the things that was in the media recently was in relation to Chris Hemsworth. And I think this is where people's uh, ears will be pricked a little bit when you hear Chris Hemsworth. And he's come out and saying that he has two kind of copies of a particular gene, which is known to increase the risk of Alzheimer's. Can you explain what that gene does, and has it got a? I think it has a genetic component. I could be wrong.
1: Yeah. So we can the we can start with your f- first question last. So a genetic component of late onset Alzheimer's disease there there is one. Um, it's kind of mixed up when things uh, cluster in families, right? So we know that. You, you probably have a greater risk of Alzheimer's disease if a close family member had it. Some of that's genetic, but some of it's also shared environment, right? We talked about things that are yeah. important in the environment um, for dementia risk. And if you your close family member has an environmental exposure that increases risk, you probably have that too. So there is some element of genetics. For late onset Alzheimer's disease, it's somewhere between four and 10% of your overall risk. So relatively small, like it's there, but compared to everything else, blood sugar control, you know, we talked about cognitive stimulus, physical activity, sleep, the genetic component is quite small. And that includes this this gene that uh, Chris Hemsworth has been talking about. So this is APOE, apolipoprotein E, which is a protein that helps traffic fat around the body. Um that's what a lipoprotein mean. Lipo for lipid or fat and protein is is what is what carries is one of the proteins that c- the sort of traffics of fat around the body. And there are three different genotypes, we call them, three different types of ApoE that you can have. Two, three, and four. And you can have one or two copies of each, and you get one each from your from each of your parents. And if you have one copy of APOE four, you have something like a two to six, um, fold increase in the odds, odds being the probability divided by one minus the probability, um, and which we talk about odds cause it's just, it's the output of a certain type of statistical test. Um, so you have a two to two to six fold increase in odds of Alzheimer's disease. And if you have two copies, it's something like six to 20. Um, which sounds like big numbers and it she is 20. You know, 20
0: sounds like a big number
1: <laughs> it, it, and it, so so it is um but there are a few things to take uh into account one is that not everybody who has aPOe4 gets Alzheimer's disease and the other one is that most people who have Alzheimer's disease don't have aPOe4 um your APOe genotype contributes about five percent of your total risk so maybe half of your genetic risk if that, so, again, it's like it's a meaningful increase in risk, but compared to everything else, I think it's quite small. Um, there's also evidence that in certain populations, in certain environments, APOE4 isn't a risk factor at all. So, um, the Bolivian Timonay, who are a hunter gatherer group in Bolivia, the Nigerian Yoruba, uh, there are studies done in indigenous Americans in the US. So, people who are separated from what I'll call a modernized, westernized, Environment, apoE4 is not a risk factor for cognitive decline or Alzheimer's disease. So, to me, this helps make the argument that it's maybe a gene environment interaction, um, and the risk is increased when we put ourselves in an environment where we eat bad food, we don't sleep, we don't move. Um, you know, we don't stimulate our brains throughout our lifetime because you know we retire and then we just sit at home and don't do anything. So, I think. Yes, ApoE4 does increase risk. Uh, in that uh, documentary, uh, a friend of mine, Peter Attia, says to Chris Hemsworth, "You know, I think that with by modifying your lifestyle and these other things, we can mitigate all of the risk that comes with ApoE4 and, and make it so that you just have like a, a, a normal risk of Alzheimer's disease." And I think that's I think that's true. Um, you you know, if you address the same things regardless of your genetics, you can dramatically change um, your your long term risk.
0: Okay, cool. And what documentary is that? Is it, is it a Netflix documentary?
1: It's called Limitless. I think it's a national
0: geographic, oh, no, a geographic one. Okay. Um, the last question I'm going to ask is in relation to mobile phones and technology. Yeah. How much of an impact is the likes of phone use and social media and stuff having an impact on our brain health overall? And is there any link or is there any kind of and that could, like, is there any main driver to kind of Alzheimer's or dementia or is there anything like that? Or is it just don't use your phone as much?
1: Yes. So I don't think we, I, I don't think that we've had smartphones long enough yeah, true. to see an effect, right? Because you need it to be, you, you would need people our age to use smartphones for, 30 or 40 years until they get into the risk period that you might start to see it. And I don't oh, think we've really? reached that yet. So ask me in 30 years, maybe. Um I think there are you know pros and cons. Certainly um using that as a as as your main way of interacting with the world can be problematic. We know the importance of um real social interaction. It's one of the strongest um preventers of mortality and, and dementia is having strong social connections. And those have to be in person, really, the majority of them to, to have the, the most benefit. Um, so if your smartphone is preventing you from interacting with real life people, I think that can be problematic. Uh, there's also probably some uh, benefit to occasionally, being bored and being forced to to think about things and we don't give ourselves that opportunity um if if we're like continuously scrolling um however you know there are there are some nice studies on things like video games which suggest that those who play video games have some improved cognitive function and i think there are some of these aspects of technology that allow us to to stimulate and challenge our brains in even though they're novel ways they could still be beneficial so um you know when when you're playing games that involve problem solving or uh, reaction skills or even social interaction, uh, so, uh, sometimes depending, right. If you're playing call of duty and chatting to people around the world that, you know, maybe there's some benefit there. So I think there, there are some, you know, we're sort of, we always want to catastrophize stuff. Um, and, but I think there are maybe some benefits of, of technology. It, it forces us to use our brains in different ways. And as long as that's, um, not preventing us from doing these other things that are important for the brain, I'm less worried about it, right? So, if, if you spend all your day staring at your phone, then that means that you're not interacting with other people, you're not, um, you know, learning new skills, an instrument, a language, some, you know, you're not moving around um, as much, you're not sleeping properly. I think some of the some of the negative effects of that kind of technology, because they're preventing you from doing these other beneficial things rather than because they're directly negative themselves. So I think some of that stuff is absolutely fine, as long as we're balancing it with those other things that we know are important.
0: I like the sound of the video games thing. I might start playing video games rather than playing football in real life and see if that helps.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i I read so, uh, uh, Josh and I, uh, this neurologist, we, we wrote a paper about cognitive demand being this really important thing for dementia prevention. And uh, Joe Rogan mentioned it on his po- on his podcast oh, as an excuse for playing video games. So there
0: you go. <laughs> do be like Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be like Joe. Uh, yeah. Happy days. No, I, I think that there's so much in there. I think people are definitely gonna have to listen back to it again because there is a lot of like technical technical uh, information in there that. And I, The whole point of this episode was not like a scaremongering tactic. The yeah. whole point of this information that we're talking about today is to make people aware of what's going on and what could be changing and kind of watching out for the signs and what you can do and the preventative measures. And that was the point of the episode, not one of these sensationalist headlines which some people can kind of like take out of context. I know I was trying to play a little bit of sensationalist with the mobile phone and the football, <laughs> but I had to.
1: What, what I do want people to. What I do want people to know is that we're increasingly appreciating that, you know, most Alzheimer's disease can probably be prevented. You know, there was one of the biggest medical journals, um, The Lancet, ha- held a commission two years ago, and they ha- they released this report, uh, which said that they projected 40% of Alzheimer's disease was completely preventable based on lifestyle, you know, or improving education, so cognitive stimulus, um, um, preventing smoking, uh, air pollution, diet, physical activity, all that kind of stuff. My guess is that it's more than 40% because they didn't include how these things interact. We know some of these factors interact. They looked at them individually. They didn't include uh, the effect of sleep. Uh, they mentioned it, but they couldn't like quantify it. So I think the majority of Alzheimer's disease can be prevented. And that's not controversial to say that, right? There are huge bodies of experts who who say that. And I think that's really empowering. Like, we have the ability to to change that. The brain isn't this thing that it just gets worse over time. And there's nothing we can do about it, right? No matter when we intervene, we can have a significant uh, effect as long as we, you know, put it, put ourselves in the right environment and we change some of those things that we talked about. And I think so. Uh, it's good news. Like that's that's what I want people to, to take away.
0: That is good news. I think that's a nice note to finish off. <laughs> uh where can people find you on social media and look at some more of your work
1: so yeah the best place is probably Instagram um at Dr Tommy wood on Instagram um I try and post some clips from podcasts and stuff if I'm I'm on podcasts it will, I'll put them in my stories at least and if there's some clips and stuff that'll end up in my main feed um the better brain Fitness podcast you can look up with myself and Josh Turknet um there's a you, you should be able to find a website associated with it where you can uh, submit questions. So you can either record yourself asking a question and that will get played, or you just type in a question and and we'll pick them. Um, so if you have a question that you think you want the answer to that I didn't answer today, but other people might benefit from, head over there and, and we'll try and get to it.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for, for coming on, Tommy.
1: Thanks so much for the invite. This is a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Tommy Wood for coming on. That was a super super insightful episode and super super useful episode to listen to if you've enjoyed this episode please do tag and share both of us up onto your stories if you have found it useful share it with a friend if you know of someone with going through dementia or alzheimer's please know that there are support groups out there for you and it's important to understand this conversation needed to be spoken about because it's definitely on the 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 surge or the the rise in general. So, really, really, do hope that you've enjoyed it. Please do share, tag, leave a review up on your stories, up review on iTunes, up on Spotify. Because the more that happens, and I've also just sat here while I'm recording this, I've looked at some of the guests that are coming up before the end of March. We've got client interviews. We've got some of the biggest names in nutrition fitness coming up in the next kind of four five six weeks so i'm really really excited and that's because you guys have created the platform for it to grow so please continue to watch that please continue to push that so i hope you guys enjoyed the episode with tommy wood